0: Welcome to CTN, CIO Talk Network, with your host, Sanjo Gall. All comments, views, and opinions expressed on this show are strictly those of the host, guests, and callers. Now, here's Sanjo Gall. Hello, and welcome to this
1: segment on CTN. To learn more, please visit CIOTalkNetwork.com. And the topic for today is Balancing Relevance and Sustainability in Banking. So what we are seeing here today is there is an ever increasing demand and the changing preferences that we are finding customers are having and banks are trying to adopt and making sure that they innovate and stay relevant in the industry because it's very competitive. But then it is not easy for them to do so because there are a lot of macroeconomic uh, trends that we are finding which could be challenging and also the technology risk Uh, is also to be handled. Then you have to have compliance regulations. All of these things make it very difficult for a banking institution to be sustainable. So what are the banks doing to make sure that they have a healthy balance between relevance and sustainability? Our guest for today is Daniel Tonella, Group CIO for Unicredit, and I'd love to hear from him and his thoughts here. Hey, Daniel, how are you?
2: Hi. Hello. Very good. Thank you. How about you?
1: Very good, sir. Thanks so much. So, so the first question I have for you, say, so banks are definitely very heavily investing in digital, whatever the latest thing that we're talking about here, and even traditionally always been tried to be at the forefront. They have never been laggards in terms of investments. But then we always have had this challenge that the technology leaders especially say, I cannot do as much because of these compliances and regulations. So are you truly getting positive outcomes from all that you're investing so far?
2: Yeah, that's a very interesting question. So we have indeed been uh, investing massively. Uh, we just completed a, a, a three-year transformation plan where we invested in, uh, in excess of one to €7 billion Euro, uh, in technology uh, on all the dimensions, right? So both uh, to facilitate uh, our digital evolution, to anticipate what our customers need, but also uh, to ensure that uh, our colleagues and customers uh, can profit from a secure uh, uh, IT in usability and in data protection terms. Now, if I look at the outcomes of the last couple of years, I've been uh, trailing on, on various dimensions, uh, and uh, most of them related uh, for the final customers in features and in an improved usability. Uh, you would almost say that the true nature of digital is not necessarily technology-oriented, but it means to meet your customers where they are and in the current world, they are in a, in a digital place, first of all. Secondly, they tend to be, I would say, smart, lazy, uh, in the sense that uh, the type of service and feature they consume has to be immediate, has to be intuitive uh, in the usability, and it has to be performing and, uh, and secure. So meeting the customers in that space is what we have been uh, building in the, last, uh, in the last couple of years. Um, with, uh, and I take just one you know, simple example. In, in Italy, we rolled out... Uh, uh, a first wave of uh, mobile uh, banking application that is going to be rolled out in the rest of Europe or is being rolled out right now, um, which has been uh, uh, getting very good re- uh, uh, re- re- reviews uh, on the various uh, stores uh, where, uh, where users can download the app and it is used uh, you know, by a couple of million of people every day. So this is uh, what, uh, what digital has been at scale, but we have, we have also been exploring uh, in a, I would say it's already beyond prototype but exploring smaller realities uh, of digital for example we have a, a small innovative uh, a brand uh, that is exploring new ways of doing mobile banking or doing banking in a digital space to be more precise uh, which are more discoveries to try to I would say understand earlier how different market segments behave so we can get ready for or we are exploring in the blockchain space uh, even if we uh, uh, still, do not want to uh, to enter actively the, the, the cryptocurrency space, but the, the blockchain in trading uh, is something we are exploring. So we are mixing between the large industrial movement and the smaller ex- exploratory actions. On your questions on uh, on compliance, that's a pretty tricky one eh? because uh, uh, first of all, a compliance, you know, is uh, or regulation just to start uh, is born with the right intention, which is to rule and protect. And as long as uh, compliance applies to all actors, it is not necessarily a limiting factor because competition happens uh, with the same challenge uh, to everybody. I mean, if you have to fight with one uh, one arm only, then we will do so if everybody has the same condition. Uh, This is... uh and you know, modulo some uh, small uh, sectors, I know, for example, that um, or you might know that in the fintech space, uh, there are some uh, uh, special regulations for fintechs at the beginning of their life before they have to get a banking license, and that's okay because it keeps everybody very real. So uh, compliance is not necessarily a limiting factor. Uh, the 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 trick with compliance is a slightly different one, which is um, you you could say, I mean, there is regulation, interpretation, implementation. So the challenge. Uh, is uh, between regulation and implementation. The challenge is in the interpretation of uh, of regulation, and here's where uh, where technology and compliance sometimes have a slightly different uh, view of things. Uh, it's in the interpretation of regulation. Uh, technology tends to move much faster than the interpretation of law sometimes even than the regulations themselves. Uh, if I take, uh, for example, cloud, uh, we, we just have a series of uh, European Central Bank guidelines on, on cloud, and they arrived uh, well after cloud was in itself uh, uh, readily available. So here is where the risk appetite uh, of, a, of a financial organization uh, is, uh, plays a, a differentiating role on the level of aggressivity to which you can use modern technology to, um, to innovate. So as a as a bank, as a, as a technologist in the bank, uh, one of our challenges, of course, to, uh, to manage all the opportunities that technology uh, provides, uh, but keeping a focus on what both clients and employees need and also how we can uh, ensure that we keep protecting the data and the transactions of our customers, because at the end of the day, banking is trust business, and uh, the balance we need to strike is uh, you know, with the speed of adopt, adopting new things uh, and the, the sustainability in the, in the trust sense of the word that we need to uh, that we need to get.
1: So, would you say that the compliance mandates you have, or whatever else that you do in terms of compliance, is essentially to invest towards that trust factor? which is the very baseline for any customer to say, okay, I'm willing to put my money in your bank and I know you will take care of me. Is that how you look at compliance or is it still looked at as a constraint, as a debilitating overhead, as something which is holding you back? What's the sentiment that prevails within banks? I mean, if you if – you, let,
2: let's separate for a second the rational part from the, from the emotional one. Uh, the emotional one, which is the one linking to the sentiment, I would say, is one of blocking. Because as technologists, we know that technology, in principle, allows you to do anything. You know, you give me a problem, I can solve it. I have an idea on how to solve it. I know a technology can do it, a, a tool, a framework, a whatever, a language, uh, a new fancy uh, SaaS service. But that's the emotional part of the story. The rational one is that at the end of the day, it's a risk game. It's not about just about uh, buying new toys and rolling out the new cool stuff, uh, but it's about ensuring that we uh, that we are going to and I use a harsh word to survive on the long run, and that means exactly balancing. I would say, the two opposite visions, so the highly dynamic, super innovative, uh, fast technology adoption view that uh, that IT uh, sometimes brings to the table with a very conservative, uh, risk-averse view that sometimes compliance brings to the table. So that dialogue is a fundamental one to converge on an appropriate level of, uh, of risk appetite where everybody says, okay, I get enough innovation, so I reap enough of what technology can do without compromising excessively uh, uh, what uh, what the bank in this case uh, is willing to take as uh, as risk and, and that's and that's the conversation of course you know in emotional terms if you you know if the sky is the limit is the limit and everything is greenfield that's frustrating but at the same time when you look at the amount of legacy that we are uh, we have to build on uh, it's not every time uh, greenfield greenfield right so it's uh, uh, the the feat of serving millions of customers like we do is exactly to you know, be fast enough. Uh, uh, I would say in the in the context, but without uh, putting at risk uh, uh, all the customers we are serving.
1: So, when you are looking at the the innovation side, would you say that you are already on the way to make the most of digital, or you're always? Um, essentially trying to hold yourself back because you never know which new compliance mandate might come at you and you will have to undo some of those innovations. Are you always, is compliance always ahead of innovation or is it the other way around?
2: I would say that rightfully compliance is a bit the other way around because the challenge of innovation is that the faster you go, the more you enter unexplored territory. And uh, um, and uh, so it's it's legitimate for compliance to be on the conservative side, right? Because you know compliance is there to protect customers, to protect data, and to protect I would say the long-term perspective of an institution like uh, like a bank. Um, that, that's, so I, I wouldn't say that compliance is ahead of innovation. Uh, compliance uh, is to me, more a function that has to set the boundaries for innovation. So set the risk appetite we are willing uh, to take. And in those boundaries, then technology can, you know, thrive and, uh, and, uh, and develop and, uh, and, and go. So far, I didn't see a uh, step back because of uh, changes in compliance, I have to say. So all the technologies I've seen adopting in the last uh, uh, probably five to ten years were, you know, adopted and used and full stop. So I saw uh, – I, I, I cannot rem- remember of, uh, of step backs because suddenly the regulation the regulation changes, uh, and this probably is also in defence of a of a conservative view on, on compliance. Because we are not adopting, I would say, in a in a brainless way, if you want, or in a in an excessively enthusiastic way. But we are adopting uh, in a in a, uh, I would say in a in a very mature way. Some would say maybe in a in a slower way, uh, but in turn we did in a way where we never had to uh, to go back on anything.
1: So let's talk about the very policymakers who end up building these compliance regulations. I'm sure they have the right interests in mind. But is the fear or the paranoia, which might be driving their boundaries that they are creating for you, are they not also subject to revisions? Because earlier when someone used to say, oh, I cannot buy something online because I might get ripped off. And then people moved on from there. So are the policymakers moving on from the super conservative to little less conservative as long as you're not totally opening the the banks for risk, but still allowing that extra room that banks need to use the latest and greatest technology and computing and even business model based innovation to make the most of what we want? How are they looking at Are they bending the rules? I mean, maybe they don't need to bend the rules. They should actually rethink the rules. But are they, given what the opportunities are ahead? Yeah. So
2: it's, um, I mean, th- th- there are a couple of uh, I would say comments first. Uh, the first one is that a regulation takes l- a long time to be uh, defined, enacted, approved, uh, and put in place. So the life cycle of a regulation is uh, is pretty long. That means that um, regulation has to foresee a whole series of eventualities already at a uh, design state, and this creates intrinsically a certain slowness in regulating uh, uh, contexts. Uh, on the other side, regulation takes time, but when it gets out, then it's no longer negotiable. Take, for example, in Europe, we have the GDPR uh, regulation that took a very long Time to be uh, to be designed, defined, and enacted. But when the moment it was out, uh, it was uh, serious stuff. So, uh, by its nature, regulation will always have a different speed than innovation. Okay, so this is one uh, one initial point. That said, uh, the regulator has to, and uh, in Europe at least, uh, is managing this uh, balance between putting out regulations that are conservative in nature. I mean, GDPR is one of them because it's creating, uh, you know, a significant pressure on the way we treat uh, personal data or personal data in general. And on the other side is also enacting rules. Uh, In Europe, there is a regulation uh, called PSD2, so a payment service directive, uh, which is basically forcing banks to open their APIs to uh, fintech, de facto, but uh, to any other, to, to uh, sorry, a series of certified uh, third parties granting access to current account of uh, of individuals. Right? And that is a regulation which is exactly the opposite. It's a regulation that is fostering opening of the boundaries because it's born out of a vision uh, of uh, strength and competition and uh, uh, value for the customer. So the regulator is trying to play those two games, the one of protecting and the one of creating an ecosystem that is fostering collaboration, is not allowing anyone I would say to fall asleep at the desk if I may use this, uh, this expression. Um, you probably imagine also there are conversations between uh, uh, regulators and large operators that happen, I would say, during the process of, uh, of uh, designing and, uh, and preparing uh, 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 any kind of, uh, of policies or, or of regulation, exactly to ensure that what gets enacted because it will last usually for a relatively long time, uh, is as practical as possible.
1: So, uh, we, you, you gave a pretty good answer on the front on where are the policymakers going and thinking. Now, when you talk about the very trends, we don't seem to have control, and I do not think anyone could have tra- a control on the macroeconomic trends or something totally like a meltdown we saw in 2008, how how proactive and how um, creative are we getting? That we become as innovative we can be, but be ready for those um, unprecedented events or something totally different than like you know what you had in in 2008, and and not lose the very business focus that we have because we can get very enthusiastic as you use the word about technology and about innovation, but at the end of the day, it's somebody else's money, which you are managing. How do you ensure that all people, starting from your software developer all the way to someone who's in, who, who's in the compliance department or in the head of IT department, they focus on that one thing, which is to safeguard the interest of that person who's putting their, their trust in you, the bank, and and even though there may be some fundamental shifts in macroeconomic trends or some policy makers' approaches, we don't lose that focus. Do you think we are there yet? Yeah. Look, I mean, I'm in, uh, I've been now
2: probably, you know, close to 20 years in IT, and uh, I, I never felt that uh, we, we, we were seeing what was coming next. Uh, so in this sense, uh, IT has been... Uh, a very uncertain business for a, for a pretty long time, uh, and in general, what never changed uh, uh, since probably the dawn of IT. That IT, IT had to uh, to keep a, a, a good or an excellent balance between uh, uh, agility, so uh, being nimble, being you know quick and fast to react uh, on uh, on stimuli, efficiency. Uh, cost pressure in IT has been a reality for a long time, and sustainability, which is something which is sometimes I feel more emerging. Uh, in the sense that um, you know it's not enough to be very fast in time to market, uh, principles like uh, uh, devops uh, or extreme programming or uh, whatever you want to call it are fantastic, uh, but only if you do not abuse them just to generate legacy at a higher pace than before, because then you are just getting faster in a corner uh, than than what used before so the sustainability question is uh, is, uh, is still a lot in uh, in the center now let's say there is of course a uh, Nicole, say a, a wet dream of IT, which is the one of uh, being uh, uh, counter-cyclical uh, in investment, i.e. When, uh, when economy is strong and money is, quote unquote, easily uh, uh, available to have the strength to invest in uh, uh, decluttering or in uh, Feng Shui of IT, if you want to call it like this, or in cleaning up or in reducing complexity, while when times are tight, you can then profit from that uh, from that clean up that you have done during uh, during fat times. Sadly, reality is exactly the opposite. So we are perfectly cyclical. When economy is strong, we invest. Uh, to generate value and, and revenue, uh, and we and we really go on, uh, I would say on uh, on lots of new changes and lots of uh, uh, of let say add-ons to the existing systems. And where economy is uh, is weaker, uh, then it's about reducing cost, uh, ensuring uh, uh, agility, ensuring enough change budget uh, to keep evolving, uh, which is a crunch again. So. Uh, I would dream of being counter-cyclical, uh, we, are, uh, we are cyclical, uh, you know, at least the experience I've seen around, are, are most of them are, are cyclical, and it's unclear to me what are, if there are any kind of paradigms that I would allow us to, uh, to, to answer this. Sometimes people tell me, you know, cloud with this pay paper use agility, the scale-up, the scale-down, the super-flexibility uh, is one of the instruments. Uh, to get that uh, that perfect agility, uh, that whatever happens in the future you can react, that might be true in the long run. In the short run, the reality is that first of all, uh, that agility comes at a price. Uh, so you need to be aware that you are you know you are buying agility. And secondly, for institutions, that have been putting hell of a lot of money uh, into technology in the last you know hundred years, uh, or in you know in modern technologies, probably in the last uh, ten to twenty years until we will get to that perfect state of full agility, full scalability, uh, full elasticity, the 12-factor app design and everything, it will go a very long time until all of the legacy has been transformed. So that reality of, I uh, would say, steering a tanker uh, in a rough sea that demands you uh, to, to still get agility, that will uh, remain for us for a while.
1: So, you know, compared to where we are today uh, and go back, say, a decade or two, the way uh, money was moving around, the way the industry was, there is a disruption across many fronts. Would you say banks, have they rethought what sustainability means, what growth means, what innovation means? Because a lot of fundamentals have been shifted.
2: Well... um I mean, to, to, to me, a sustainable business for the long term means sustainability in a very broad sense. So it's not just the business model itself, it's not just uh, the, the client offering, i.e. Uh, you know, offering products and services to our customers that are sustainable and not just uh, focused on the immediacy uh, of, uh, of the transaction. But it means sustainability also in a, in a, in a broader context. It means uh, sustainability from an environmental perspective, and here the bank is also uh, making announcements and investing uh, correspondingly. Uh, it means uh, sustainability in the sense of uh, corporate responsibility. And I, you know, I mentioned that you know, separating the corporate responsibility of a bank that is a financial institution is, uh, is a sort of oil into the economy because it is making the whole uh, the whole society flow, if I may say. But I really focus on corporate responsibility, uh, touching elements of uh, we call it corporate social uh, uh, corporate social banking, um, uh, sorry, social banking initiative. I'm confusing the names. A social banking initiative, which is a subset of banking. That's also part of sustainability. Um, then, of course, uh, the the trick, and here I'm zooming back into technology. The trick of sustainability in technology is a very delicate balance between the amount of new stuff you create and the amount of cleanup you do in, uh, in everything you've done in the past. And there's a sort of sweet equilibrium where if you do excessively, uh, uh, if, you, if you put excessive energy on everything new, then you start neglecting what you already have and it's going to bite you back sooner or later. Uh, and if you spend too much into maintaining what you have, you lose connection with uh, what is ahead of you. So striking that balance uh, is uh, one of the fundamental elements of sustainability. I cannot afford to be super innovative for the next two or three years just to get in three years down the road in front of a, on a wall because I'm sitting on obsolescent technology that is blasting in my face every second day and is, uh, is uh, creating a whole, whole, whole a lot of security issues. So that is the, the technical sustainability question that we need to, uh, we need to, uh, uh, to treat.
1: Now, given that you mentioned that you've been in in, uh, technology and I'm assuming within banking for the last 10, 20 years, what would you think you would be, you are doing differently now when it comes to people, the culture development, the technology approach to managing and using technology and uh, the processes, what are you doing differently now than what you did a decade ago? Has it materially getting? Uh, is it materially impacted by the world shifting around you? I, I think there are two
2: aspects that are um, that are changing. One probably faster than the other. The slower one uh, is uh, the the whole focus on uh, on processes. I was mentioning briefly DevOps and Agile before, which are uh, emerging paradigms. Uh, sometimes they have been. Uh, um, how can I say, um, uh, felt like, uh, you know, agile means I can free myself from the dictatorship of the IT process and the bureaucracy of IT, if I may say. Uh, agile, of course, is not that. Um, uh, it, is, uh, it is much more, but it is also a set of rules. So there is an evolution on the process. IT is trying to move beyond that uh, Tayloristic uh, view of work where everything is a process, everything is a template, everything is a, a, a tick box, everything is a ticket, everything is very formal and automatically very rich. So that's one part of the evolution. Um, the other part is, uh, I think, a bit more progressed, and it's sad to mention it like this, but uh, I think IT is getting to the point where there is a clear recognition that digital and technology innovation is a people story first, and is a technology story second. Uh, I think that uh, all of uh, you know my fellow uh, CIOs have been in places where you know the next uh, the next buzzword was a, was a silver bullet that was a solution to all problems of the universe. Uh, you might remember, I don't know, remote procedure calls a billion years ago. Then there was uh, the SOA wave. Uh, then we had, or even before, we had, you know. Client-server after a mainframe, uh, and you know you can list the buzzwords, and all of them have led to, uh, I would say, a spree of technology acquisitions, products, uh, services, whatever you want to call them. And then everybody was surprised to observe. Oh, I mean, I, I, I bought a, a super ESB, and uh, and it's still not functioning, and it's only using seven percent of the services. How come we should have solved all, the, all the problems of the universe? So reality is. Um, and here it links uh, also a bit with sustainability. Technology and innovation is a function of skill, of proficiency, of vision, of architecture management, of focus on the long term, and not of I have a problem, I buy a tool, I solve a problem. That logic never works. In reality, it never worked even before. But I think now we're getting to the maturity uh, level where it's clear that we need to have a vision first, a set of very high professional skills. Second, here we might also open the reflection on the sourcing strategies. Uh, I think we have been, uh, I would say, intensively trying to uh, to outsource uh, uh, competencies, uh, only to notice afterwards that uh, the true value of, uh, of skills in house uh, is the one of uh, of sustainability. And I think that transformation is what uh, what is probably emerging in the IT space. So, uh, digital is a technology is a people game using technology as a tool, and it's not a technology game in the sense, I buy something and I solve my problem. And to close that, that reflection, if you also uh, think to what I was mentioning before on, uh, on digital, where uh, digital means encountering our customers where they are, um, if you take one of the core elements of a digital transformation, which is usability of systems, this is something which is profoundly human. Right? Designing usable systems is no longer... It has never been, but it's not a function of, of technology itself. Uh, yes, of course, you can do uh, things with uh, Node.js or with Angular, everything very cool. But the bottom line is if you don't think to what, uh, what you are giving as, a, as, a, as an experience uh, to your users and customers, uh, you know, whatever technology we pick will be the wrong one. So it's a people story. That transformation of IT to me is, uh, is one of the fundamental ones going forward
1: let 's take a quick break listeners We'll be right back, and uh, when we come back, um, Daniel, what we should talk about is the architecture because I know uh you spoke about technology comes you know very frequently, and we can just get enamored by it, and we use it to no end, but enterprise architecture or the architecture as a whole has to be looked at. In a, in, a, in a new light, perhaps, because earlier, howsoever we did the architecture was more as a snapshot that something which is today, is not going to change very quickly. But now literally, not just the technology, but even surrounding business models or customer expectations, everything is changing very fast. So what sort of an architecture would you recommend banks should adopt? so that they are ready for this faster future ahead. So, but before we get into more detail, let's take a quick break, listeners. We'll be right back.
0: Today, enterprise technology is both strategic and global. you are listening to CTN CIO Talk Network with Sunjo Gall. To learn more about our program, please visit ciotalknetwork.com. Now back to the show. Welcome back. So, uh, Danielle,
1: this is uh, regarding the architecture. So, are you? How are you, in fact, thinking? or rethinking your architecture because it's no longer based on a, a set of variables which will not change for some time. It will not be just one snapshot which will stay true for the next 10 years. It is things changing by the month, by the week. What are you doing differently with that?
2: Yeah. Well, first of all, I think that architecture has, uh, has multiple dimensions and multiple faces, right? You have, of course, the business architecture, the enterprise architecture, which is you know, in any industry has a certain degree of immutability, you do payment, you do payment. Uh, then you have, uh, I would say, the, uh, the application architecture, which is the, the day-to-day architecture work. Every coder that is developing a piece of software is making architectural decisions uh, at, at a smaller scale, uh, you know, up to his uh, his own uh, Integration architecture of, of, his system. And then there is the architecture in the broader sense uh, of, of IT. <clears throat> Historically, the broad architecture or the broad IT architecture has been a hell of a lot of paperwork. Uh, It was, uh, you know, uh, uh, TOGAF standards. It was uh, documentation of how things should be, uh, hoping that then the coders would respect those architectures uh, and maybe, you know, auditing them and bashing on them if they were not respecting uh, or having security figure out that, uh, I don't know, architecture was foreseeing uh, secure file transfer and everybody was FTPing around. So architecture was a sort of uh, always a bit late to the party, if I may say, especially in intensively innovative industries where there is no time of, for, uh, for uh, long-term thinking, but you have to just, uh, to just rush. Um, what we are trying to do here is to um, have an architecture function that is, uh, on the one side, able to anticipate the next couple of years because the decisions we are making in architectural terms will be with us for a couple of years, but at the same time, being an architecture which is operationally active uh, in, uh, in our particular case, the architecture team owns uh, the integration layer. So the very same team that designs the convergence strategy for technologies is the team that, uh, uh, that operates uh, our integration layer, and that gives us uh, a certain degree of control on the convergence path. Of course, it's not an absolute control, and of course it's a journey, but it's a very good beginning to start, I would say, putting discipline Exactly, in the intersection of all the various systems. So this is one uh, thing that, uh, that we have been doing with the architecture team. Um, the second one is, of course, uh, reinforcing the team with skill. Uh, the architecture team is uh, not the team where you put the ones that are good at drawing PowerPoints uh, and, the, and the ones that cannot code in architecture to put your best coders at the end of the day because they are the ones that define... The rules and take uh, the technology calls that all the others have to respect. Uh, so it's a reputation game. You have, you have to have your best ones there uh, because only then the rest of the development community will uh, will follow, uh, you know, instructional advice. Uh, then the other um, uh, action we have been taking to reinforce architecture is around the the the, the whole movement towards uh, towards DevOps. And I'm sorry for the buzzword. Uh, I'll just uh, you know refer to DevOps as the transformation of the software development life cycle in the sense of automation from, you know, I write a line of code and it hits production with all the chain in between. Now, uh, DevOps is a, is, a, is, a, is a powerful transformation for, uh, uh, for the IT family, um, but it is, um, I would say, it's a tricky one. First of all, if you just let it happen, you will have a spree of various DevOps stacks because every project, every team, every area we'd have a better opinion on uh, what, what is your uh, CI, CD stack, what is your automatic testing stack, what is this, what is that. Okay. So what we have done here uh, was to, uh, first of all, to uh, delegate to the central architecture team the sole ownership of the DevOps stack. So it's only developed in one place by them. Um, first uh, change. Second change, we created a community around the architecture team. So anyone in the software development family that wanted to contribute to DevOps, could join the initiative led by architecture so to contribute in the creation of the stack and in the selection of the tools too, so to ensure, uh, to already anticipate a certain level of adoption going uh, going forward. And then last point, we started distributing a sort of mantra to the organization, which was don't DevOps alone, uh, which is the soft way of saying if you Devox alone, you'll get a problem. Right? Uh, the, the point here is if you let The organization would say organically create architectures. uh, You uh, you end up in a situation that is very very chaotic, and you have to select where you want to really converge. So one uh, element is the integration architecture was uh, I was uh, the integration layer. Sorry, I was mentioning before, and the second one is the DevOps stack, uh, where here the mandate is uh, is uh, to use only one element. So these are uh, all uh, approaches to start simplifying. Uh, the architecture in the in the long run. Uh, by the way, um, the the point of skill is a fundamental one, in particular in the DevOps stack. Uh, de- designing a DevOps stack, uh, uh, if you if you do it with people that are very very advanced and recognized by the rest of the community, grants you uh, a good deal of adoption of the of the of the one stack uh, more than just letting it happen. And then the last element uh, that we have uh, put in place. Uh, I would say, to evolve architecture in a smart way, uh, is a very strict uh, rule on the use of public cloud. In particular, we selected two public cloud providers. Uh, and we intro- So, first of all, we selected two of them. So, we say we only go with the two of them. And the reason here was, first of all, to avoid one of the biggest risks of going cloud, which is one of atomization of IT. So, if you just let it happen organically, you will end up in a couple of years having your data and your applications and the user access, accesses all over the place, not knowing exactly what, where they are, which I would like to avoid. So focusing on two to reduce optimization risk. Secondly, focus on two, because this way we can design the architectures to use those services in a proper way. We can engineer only one interconnectivity uh, each, of course. Uh, we can engineer identity access management, monitoring, patching, whatever you want to call it, only twice and not end times. So we can keep the level of usage for the cloud providers at a sufficient level, and then in parallel to enforce the use of the two and not anyone else, we introduced a sort of gateway where every initiative or project that needs to go public cloud, be SAS, PAS, or YAS, has to go through a gateway where besides having a check from uh, you know, in, in, you know, from functions like data protection, legal, procurement, uh, security, uh, compliance, you know, all the functions that usually have to have a say in the context, uh, we also verify that that initiative is not going in anyone else of the two uh, cloud providers so that we keep an integrity of our architecture in the long term. And I think the game in architecture is really, uh, to summarize, is really to ensure that complexity remains at bay uh, a strong architecture function ensures that complexity at least doesn't grow, uh, if not gets on a path of, uh, of uh, uh, steady reduction um, uh, without compromising, of course, the adoption of, of new services and the innovation on the other side of the story.
1: Now that you spoke about the architecture, let's talk about the people. Now, you must be rethinking your architecture, but even the people's mindset, the ones at least who report to you they have to start thinking differently if they have to help your organization remain sustainable and also stay relevant have you done anything different in the way you hired them the way you groomed them the way you led them
2: um here i have to zoom back three years when i uh, when i took over this uh, this role so just uh, just after joining uh, mindful of the fact that this transformation is a people transformation, what we did, we sent uh, about 400 executives uh, into an individual leadership assessment to figure out who are the ones that people will want to follow, so the natural born change leaders, if I may say, who are the ones that are okay, but they might need some, uh, I would say, some investment and some work, and who are the ones that are at the wrong place for you know, whatever reason. Okay. So this was the, the very first initial step, and following that step, we then uh, refreshed a very large amount of uh, very large, a significant amount of uh, uh, of, uh, of these executives, um, uh, you know, refresh in the sense of uh, hold, uh, you know, taking in also from the market, putting a special eye on diversity. Uh, when uh, when I arrived, it was a team that was uh, had a very low. Level of diversity when I say diversity, I mean diversity over a, a series of dimensions of i mean gender on the one side but also uh, uh, industrial experience i mean people coming from Sectors that were not necessarily banking, uh, age diversity. Uh, you know, you know, I, I put in uh, in leadership positions also people who were traditionally too young, uh, or in the in the, would say in the very traditional sense, they were probably five uh, five to seven years too young. Uh, people from a diversity from a geographical perspective. I mean, putting people from Poland in Italy or people uh, from Italy in, in Germany. So this mix up of uh, of. Uh, uh, of uh, Of cultures uh, and all that um, from the perspective of creating an environment where um, I can say there are, that nothing is is automatically assumed, but you have to uh, to keep listening to your counterpart because they do not think exactly like you so a culture of uh, of of reflection on the one side um, on the uh, on the other side. And, and this is a very, very long transformation, so I, I do not pretend to be a, a target yet, but uh, I think the journey is the right one. A part of the transformation is also uh, turning the leadership logic, uh, i.e. the leader as, you know, the boss that screams at you and tells you exactly what to do is the only one that has the the, the uh, genius ideas and is the only, the one, the only one that knows and then that, you know, if you follow your boss, you will be happy forever turn that logic to a leadership that is serving the organization and it is creating the preconditions for the true experts which are hidden, you know, two, three levels uh, down uh, in the bowels of the organization uh, to create the preconditions for those experts to thrive, to, uh, to explore, to explode in the sense of, in the performance sense of course, but to really build on people. And that turning the leadership logic to me is one of the fundamental elements to create a truly engineering led culture. Um, um, because if you, if you just let it, uh, I would say, uh, I would say, uh, uh, classic bossy mode, uh, the true technology talent will just disappear because they have better to do than uh, than uh, than follow uh, authoritarianism. Uh, the last element, probably on uh, on that part of the story, is uh, we are working hard to create uh, attractive career paths for engineers. You know, in the tra- in the large enterprise, the traditional career for anyone was uh, go manage. Right. So you are a fantastic talent in whatever technology that's your passion you, you 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 know you sleep in a data center, whatever your passion is, but then at some time you want to have a career even down to the material terms right so you have a bit better salary, maybe some perks uh, but uh, in in the classic um, uh, enterprise world, that career can only be management and eventually leadership, uh, which is a losing position because uh, you end up uh, losing a talent uh, with passion. Uh, to, get a ma- to get a manager that might not necessarily be a fantastic manager. I mean, managing a, I mean mastering a technology does not necessarily mean mastering, uh, mastering uh, or, or leading people. Um, so we are trying to create a career path or a career ladder for engineers where an expert uh, can, on the one side, you know, get promotions without having to manage people. Um, on the other side, uh, a career where, besides some material effects, uh, the perks are also tuned to the interest of engineers uh, I might want to have uh, to be allowed to contribute to open source projects or if I am a guru in whatever I might be interested in going you know once a year to uh, Palo Alto uh, at a specific conference in my area so what are the perks to ensure that our technology talents uh, get their brain fed uh, properly so that uh, you know they can still thrive uh, and, uh, and and perform at best uh, in a context that otherwise I would say, is known
1: for being a bit rigid. So I'd love to talk to you about two last things. One is the last one I would like to talk to you about is the leadership, which will be the main thing, what will drive everything. But before we get there, I cannot stop but discuss security, which is a big pain for most industries, in fact, every industry. And banking industry has got a lot to lose if they don't handle security. And it's not uncommon for us to see breaches. So what do you think is uh, the solution? Because it seems like most CIOs in banking and other industries almost show a sign of of helplessness in this regard. So what's your recommendation? If you have to become sustainable, if you have to stay relevant, we cannot just... Now, I'm not saying you're ignoring security, but we have to have a solution to this.
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, it's, uh, it's uh, not uncommon that security is, uh, is one of the core challenges, considering that, first of all, uh, banks are, uh, if I oversimplify, are holding money, uh, and we are in a digital world. So you could uh, you could uh, take the sheriff uh, stories of the far west and project in a digital world. uh, Welcome to cybersecurity. So it is uh, it is uh, uh, nothing new, I would say, in the threat to core asset terms. Uh, um, So that that said, uh, security is a function of complexity. Uh, security is not something you can, uh, you can solve if you expect to just solve the problem by buying any kind of technology. I can assure you, uh, you know, all banks have the latest kit uh, in, uh, in, uh, in all senses, um, and then sometimes breaches uh, still, uh, still occur. Um, uh, so it's not a question of what technology do you have. It's a question of complexity in the sense how sustainable do you manage your architecture, how good do you know where your assets are, uh, how good are your people? Uh, how good are uh, the uh, the behaviors and the attitudes of your people? And when I say your people, I do not mean necessarily just in technology. I mean you could have uh, a colleague uh, uh, on the on the business side that uh, just uh, dumps on a USB stick. In our case, the USB is meanwhile locks, but uh, that can dump on a USB stick. Uh, a set of uh, customer information just to lose the USB stick on the metro, uh, and then you have a, you have a leakage uh, uh, issue. So uh, it's a it's a question of behavior, of attitudes. Is security is something that happens when uh, when no one is looking. I mean, I uh, I bet that if I uh, take any one of uh, of the companies of my colleagues and we do a a scan of the strength of the passwords of the users, uh, we will get a significant amount that still use weak passwords. Because you believe that you, if you use uh, one, two, three, four, five, six uh, as a as a password, just because no one is looking uh, over your shoulder, no one will know. I mean, these are these are the elements that uh, that uh, explain, uh, you know, how security is not a question of technology, but it's a question of complexity, behaviors, and attitude. So, is there a one solution? no, there is no one solution. There is nothing that uh, you know, I can put on the table and say, okay, let's do this and then security will be solved. It is a very large portfolio of, of course, of specific initiatives. You have an interest in having a very sophisticated uh, security operations center. You have an interest in having a, a set of some of the modern detection technologies. Uh, you have an interest in having behavioral analytics uh, systems, but you do also have an interest in, uh, in having a, a, a good uh, level of maturity uh, in your, uh, in your uh, teams, business and IT alike. You also have an interest in managing your uh, existing infrastructures uh, the, in the cleanest way possible because, you know, what is really dangerous is what you do not know uh, that you might have in your system. So, um, no, there is no one system – but yes, mastering complexity, mastering sustainability—sorry, reducing complexity, mastering sustainability—and ideally, you uh, know, uh, I would say keeping the basics under control uh, is probably the best recipe to uh, to uh, I would say to thrive in a cybersecurity tense uh, world like the digital one. So. Uh-
1: the, the last oh. question is regarding leadership. So you are a leader, you are also learning. Nobody is completely aware of what's going to happen. What's happening, of course, you could be aware, but what's coming down the pike. So if you had to give some message or some tips to the people who are stepping up into the CIO role, or they themselves are living, but you know for everyone here, it's turbulent times what would you say is the best way to lead today for tomorrow? I,
2: I mean, I would have a, a, a long list of recommendations, but probably the, the two or three biggest ones, um, uh, I think, first of all, you need to know what is happening outside. Uh, so you need to be an avid reader, um, and you know don't let vendors tell you what is happening outside I mean, the, 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 the marketing is obfuscating the true messages so go out uh, uh, you know pick your favorite blog pick your favorite uh, podcast pick your favorite author you know go out and follow what is happening uh, on the ground so not just you know the big announcements not the buzzwords but what is happening on the ground That's is our first recommendation a second one is network um, because there is no one else that has your exact challenge, but most of your peers in the industry will share a part of it or had a part of that in the past. And at the same time, some of your challenges might be new or the challenge for which you have a solution might be new to others. So network is a fundamental element uh, of, uh, of getting ready for the, for the role. So these are the two outside perspectives. Then there is an element inside. One is build a very, very strong relationship with your business counterparts. Uh, because because the divide between IT and business is one of the most dangerous uh, effects on the life of a CIO, Uh, and it's extremely dangerous because both parties need to understand the counterpart, but this is, you know, it requires a mutual trust, and that is a a proximity that, that you need to create. So go out, seek for your counterpart, understand what their problems are, and solve their problems, but make them also clear what your problems are, and how your problems at the end of the day are their problem, too. I mean, sustainability might not be an immediate problem for business. It will become one eventually. So have that conversation with business. And then the last recommendation is uh, trust your team. Trust your team, not blindly, of course, but seek inside your organization who are the true hidden leaders, the talents that uh, that make your organization run without you knowing it. I bet you have them. Uh, I bet that many of the things the organization is doing do not happen because you are telling it to them, but it happens because the organization knows what is right. So get to know those people uh, and listen to them, trust them. Uh, There is so much valuable knowledge inside the organization that you can uh, mobilize.
1: On behalf of the show and our listeners, thank you so much, Daniel, for sharing your insights about how banks can enable relevance while ensuring sustainability, and make sure that the organization creates a trust with their customers and still become a profitable and sustainable for times to come. Thanks so much again, Daniel. Thank you. And listeners, hope you enjoyed. I got a few nuggets out of this. Please like us on Facebook. Search for CTN. That is CIO Talk Network. And be sure to follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you again for listening to this segment on CTN. This is Sanjog All, your talk show host. Till next week, take care and God bless.